Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the fall. Whether you like it or not, it's here. The fall brings lots of exciting changes for many of us. Kids have moved up a grade, some to a new school, which is is exciting for some and not so exciting for others. Uh, Other changes, pumpkin spice is back everywhere, which is exciting for some and some of us don't care. Uh, Last weekend, believe it or not, it was Labor Day weekend, right? Last weekend. And uh, in a store, I won't tell you what store so you don't boycott it, but... um, I saw Christmas displays out, which apparently means that's coming too, so we can get excited about lots of things. We as a church are excited, as you've been hearing all morning, for the kickoff of many different ministries here at the church, many that have taken a little bit of a break over the summer or have changed their formatting just a little bit, are looking and excited to resume this week, and I hope you're looking for ways to plug in and be involved I'm really excited this morning about this new sermon series that we are kicking off, that we are beginning here, called Neighboring, looking into what does it mean to really love our neighbor, Uh, and we want to give ourselves to that this fall. This is not just a sermon series thing, this is an all-church thing, all ages, because this is something that's important to the Lord, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Hopefully on your way in, in addition to your weekly bulletin, you should have received one of these If you did not receive one of these sermon series guides, just stick your hand up. Our ushers are ready. They'd love to come and drop one in your hand. Uh, And as they do that, it looks like everybody has one, or we're all too embarrassed to raise our hand. That's okay, too. But if you you don't have one of these, make sure you grab one. We're wanting to uh, use this as a tool that will walk uh, alongside uh, the sermon series for the fall. We actually have one. The one that you should have in your hand will be a... Uh, one for just this September, and then you can see I've got the other ones here for October and November, which are different colors. You can tell Pastor Bill, who is colorblind, they are different colors. They all look the same to him, but they are three different colors, one for each month, uh, and our, our hope is that they will help you as we walk through the series. If you kind of just take your fingers and flip through uh, the, the guide, if you haven't already done so, you'll see there's space for you to interact with the text for the morning. Uh, there's a place to write different thoughts and, and notes from the sermon. Uh, you can write out a prayer in response to the sermon at the end, um, and you can even write down some different ideas that the Lord may be putting on your heart uh, to take action steps uh, of faith. There's an awesome family guide, which our fantastic Mary Davis put together for us. So if you have kids, I encourage you to walk through that. Even if you don't have kids, take a look at it. Uh, it might be a great way to engage with the text. There's questions in the back, resources that we recommend in the back to go along with this. Um, but we really do want to go all in on this and understand more of what it means to love our neighbors. And this morning, to kind of get us going, I want to ask you a simple question that you may not think is that simple. Um, But since you have that guide, you can even take a pen or a pencil from the chair in front of you and just kind of jot a thought down to answer it. Or you can think about it, whatever's, whatever's easiest for you. And here's the question, just phrased two different ways, same idea. What would you, how would you respond to someone if someone came up to you and asked you, how do I get eternal life? What must I do to be saved? How would you answer that question? Take a second, just kind of maybe jot a thought down, a couple of words. How would you answer that question? Well, this morning, as we begin uh, the series, we're going to spend the entire month of September looking at one passage. It's Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 to 37, you'll find it's a very familiar one. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And each morning we're going to, or each Sunday morning, each week, we're going to read through the entire passage in hopes and prayers that the the Lord would take his word, he would sink it deep into our hearts, and he would shape us 
through his word, by his spirit. And so this morning, I want to read to, you, to us the entire passage. You can follow along on the screen in front of me in a copy of the scriptures you brought. Uh, it's even in the front cover of, your, uh, of the sermon series guide. So hear God's word from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. May God take his word by his spirit and make us more like Christ this morning. So you don't have to be, you don't have to have been raised in the church to be familiar with the idea of the Good Samaritan, right? The, the term Good Samaritan is used occasionally in, in culture to talk about someone who does an act of kindness to someone else. They're called a Good Samaritan, right? But I wonder how many of us kind of knew that opening introduction, the place where the conversation began. Because the conversation that ends with the parable of the Good Samaritan being told and the idea of loving your neighbor doesn't begin where you might expect it to. It begins with a conversation about eternal life. This interaction where the expert of the law, don't think legal law, don't think lawyer, think expert in interpreting the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This man stands up and he asks the question, but it's not a question of faith. It's not, Jesus, will you help me understand this a little bit more? It's a trap. It's an attempted trap to pin Jesus, to get him to say something that makes someone wrong so now we have a reason to come after him. It's a temptation. It's a trap. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'll talk about that question for a minute because it's a loaded idea, the idea of eternal life. And if you were with us this past spring when we walked through the Gospel of John, you know that the question, how do I inherit eternal life, is not the same question as how do I get to heaven. That cheapens the idea of eternal life. Eternal life is more than just someday in heaven, but it's actually available now. Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Eternal life is this life that is filled with love and joy and peace and goodness, the life that we were designed to experience. It does not wait until heaven, but we experience in part now and one day when Christ returns in the fullest sense. The man is asking, how do I get this? And Jesus hears his question and he responds with his own question, right? Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he's forgotten or isn't sure of the answer. 
He asks it for a reason. He's asking it almost to flip the question and set a different kind of trap for this man, but it's not a trap to pin him. It's a trap in love, right? It's an invitation. Search your heart. Search your own heart. And God in his grace, Jesus doesn't just leave him to try and flounder and try and figure out what it is. He actually directs him. Where do we find the answer? Well, what's recorded in the law? How do you read it? And this man is an expert in the law. He knows his Bible. There's a good chance that this man has memorized the entire Torah. He knows the stuff. And he quotes, he answers the question by quoting two verses from the Old Testament. The first would be what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It can also be translated, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. This is a Jewish confession that was memorized and repeated on a regular basis. It symbolizes and, and embodies the, the beginning of the, the, the heart of the law, and it's the beginning of the Ten Commandments, to love the Lord your God alone, not just with your heart, soul, and mind, as if those are the only three components, but it's meant to symbolize the whole of you, visible, invisible, all that you are, all that you have is submitted in love to God. Love the Lord with everything that you are. The first, the law requires that the whole person in every aspect be totally submitted to and consumed by God alone. And second, it requires that we meet the needs of others with all of the excitement, intensity, energy, and joy with which we meet our own, which is why he quotes Leviticus 19.8, to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about how well you love yourself. Think about how long you wait or how quickly you go take a Tylenol when your head starts to hurt, how, how keenly aware you are of your own needs. We don't wait. We're so aware of our own, and we move quickly to take care of our own needs with incredible passion, right? Lots of energy. And the second call of this is to look to the needs of your neighbor with that same intensity and energy. All the law and the prophets, Jesus says later, is hung on these two commands Jesus answers the man, you have answered correctly. That's right. You got it right. The guy's an expert in the law. He knows the right answers. And Jesus concludes with, do this and you will live. So let's step back and take a look at just this introduction. We'll, we'll dig into the parable itself next week. But what, what is this passage really showing us? So I think the first thing it shows me is that there's a problem. What's the man ask? How do I get, how do I inherit eternal life? See, eternal life is not something that we are born with. This expert in the law who stands up to, to trap and tempt Jesus, his question is not out of pure motives, but it doesn't mean he's not asking a valid and very important question. In fact, he's asking the most important question, and it's asked several times throughout Scripture. It's one of the most important questions you can ask, and it's actually a question that every single human asks every single day. They may not use those exact words, and they may not even be aware that they're asking for it. Every human being is hardwired to have eternal life. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, the good life, as long as it's possible. And it's been that way since the very beginning, the first creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, right? They had everything. God, a perfect relationship with God. And Genesis 2 just says this. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. It's less to do with clothing and more to do with the, stat the status of their heart. 
the state of their heart. There was nothing in between them and God, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide from one another. They had all of it in the garden that God had provided for them. They experienced the fullness of life. And yet if we look around us, it's clear that that's not the case right now, right? We're all wearing clothes for one, right? So something, though, it's more than just, again, clothing. It's, it's, we know what shame feels like. We know that we have things to hide. Because when Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had said, out of all the trees you may eat except this one, let me define what is right and wrong. Adam and Eve said, no, thank you. We will take your stuff and we will be God. It was a failure to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a result of that, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. Listen to Genesis 3, 22 and 23. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from where he had been taken. You see the grace that's given in God taking them out of the garden. So that in this broken, sinful, fallen state in which eternal life has been lost, we have failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He pulls them out so they can't take from the tree of life and eat forever in that state. It makes redemption possible. And every human being since has been born outside of the garden, searching for eternal life. Asking the question, how do I inherit eternal life? The problem is we've been searching for it outside of the garden, outside of the presence of God. If you want proof, just go home and watch the Eagles game today. Go home and watch the Eagles game and pay attention to the messages you're going to hear. It's the 100th year of the NFL. If you're a fan, if you're not, I'm really sorry. Just track with me as best you can. It's the 100th year of the NFL. And if this Sunday afternoon is anything like Thursday night's kickoff night, you will hear all about the 100 years, and they will show you video montages and highlights from who? The champions, the stars, the best, the legends of the game. And they will talk about them in such high regard and high esteem that you will know very clearly where they find eternal life. Eternal life is found in success, in being the best, in winning and that message is not just in sports, that message is in school, and it's in work, and it's everywhere. And if you keep watching the game, you'll get to a commercial break in which you'll hear another series of messages that say, here's where eternal life is found. And it comes from the marketing departments of all these various companies who pay for ads, right? Buy this product, and your life will be better. Eternal life is found either in our product itself or in what our product can give you. Drive this truck you'll have the respect of the neighborhood. Go on this vacation and you'll experience pleasures like you've never experienced and this is what you want. Eat this food and drink this drink and it will give you everything you've wanted. Right, marketing doesn't use those words but that's what they're targeting. They're targeting the heart, the angst inside, the emptiness that says, I'm, where is eternal life found? That's what they target, that's what they use. They say our product will get you this. Every song you listen to, every movie you watch, everywhere you go, your devices, everything is attempting to answer this quest for eternal life. Be more powerful, have more possessions, experience pleasure, have a comfortable life, have it easy. All, the answers are endless, right? But all of them have one thing in common. The book of Ecclesiastes describes all of them as chasing after the wind. You ever try to catch the wind? 
slips right through your finger. Romans 1 describes that problem as we look for the creation to do what only the creator can do. So in our human quest for eternal life, if we search for it from the creation, it will always fail. Because only creator can provide eternal life, not the creation. And we all know that's, that something's wrong. We all have this desire, this inside, this angst outside of the garden where we're looking for eternal life. And Jesus comes on and he says, let's talk about the solution. What does Jesus say is the solution? Love the Lord your God with all of yourself and love your neighbor as you love yourself, as much and as well as you love yourself. Think back to the question that I asked you earlier. Look down maybe at how you answered it. How did you answer the question? How do I be, how am I saved? How do I inherit eternal life? Because this guy answers by quoting, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus says, you're right. And you and I look down at our papers and maybe some of us are like, not what I wrote. Maybe most of us have words like this. Believe in Jesus. Come to faith and trust in Jesus. Know Christ. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And those two things seem like they're at opposition, right? Are, are the apostles and Jesus, are they missing each other? Like, a, is somebody wrong in this? In fact, many of those answers that I just said are, are actually straight out of Scripture. One example, in Acts chapter 16, there's a jailer who has the apostles, and he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and they answer, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And you look and you go, Whoa, oh, are they fighting? Are they arguing? The reason those two don't seem like they line up for us is because we have, a, mis- we have a, a, a poor understanding, a weak understanding of what faith and belief is. And one of the primary reasons that we are in that space is about 400 years ago, we came into the age that is called the age of reason or enlightenment. And why this is so important is because right before this age of reason is what was called the Dark Ages, in which there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of corruption in the church, a lot of wars that were fought in the name of religion. And people were starting to distance themselves from it, and they were starting to, oh, this doesn't feel right. And it paved the way for men like Rene Descartes. Anybody heard of him before? If you haven't heard of him, you, you know what he says. I think, therefore, I am. You've heard of that phrase. Many of you have. What what Descartes is doing in that moment is he's separating out the heart and the head. And he's saying that the real you, the real important, most important faculty of who the human, human is, is their mind, is their reasoning, is their logic, their ability to think through things in a logical, important way. And as a result... We've, we, 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 are, we are in that world. Like, this is, this is the Western way of thinking. Science is key. Over the next couple hundred years, there's an explosion of scientific discoveries, which further instilled, if you can't prove it, if you can't mentally wrap your head around it, well, I don't know. And that affects the way that we understand Scripture. So, Mike actually prayed this earlier, and John chapter 17, listen to how, think about how we hear this phrase, Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We hear the idea of knowing God, and what do we think? Just our natural reactive response is no information about God. Accumulate facts about God. 
because the word know is rooted in our mind. And we see everything through that lens. And that's shaped the way that we think about belief and faith. And so we've made them mental exercises. Things like all you have to do is just agree to a certain few pieces of doctrine. How do we inherit eternal life? Well, agree with these following statements. Agree that you are a sinner. Agree that Jesus was a sinless son of God. Agree that Jesus was crucified and raised to life on the third day. And we take our understanding of eternal life and salvation and we seed it simply in our minds. Problem is, Jesus does something different with it, doesn't he? You see, the apostles and Jesus are not at odds. They actually complement each other. He's saying, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust Jesus? Well, it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just about what you know, but it's also about what you love. A man named Jamie Smith uh, wrote this book. It's called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. Fantastic book. And in it, I want to read one quote to you. He says this, he says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but he forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. He says, you are not just what you think, but you are what you love. Silly example of this, my dentist for years, has been trying to get me to stop drinking soda cold turkey. He tells me all the logical steps, right? Here's what it does to your teeth, and here's what it does to the rest of your body, and it's not good, and I know that. And yet I still love Coke, right? There's nothing like a good cold, uh, ice-cold Coke on a hot summer day with pizza or tacos or literally anything, right? So, but I haven't stopped, even though I know logically that it's really bad for me and it's probably killing me. That being said, Jolie and the doctor together have at least made me lessen significantly my intake of Coke. But why do I not? Why do I not stop? I know it's not good for me. Well, because I love it. Quite honestly. Because my des- it's, it's not about what I know, but it's about what I really love. This is so important for us because it's so tempting, it's so natural for us to just intellectualize, to make belief and faith simply a mind thing, and yet that's not what Jesus is only after. Yeah, of course, information is important, but that's not where it stops. He's aimed at your heart. He's aimed at your loves. Do you find yourself growing in your desire to be with Jesus? Do you find yourself believing and, and loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates? Do you find yourself, your love for him growing and being displayed by your obedience to him, your submission to him? Jesus says that's what it's all about. John 14, if you love me, you will obey me. Your love will be proven, will be shown by obedience and submission. Do you find that to be true in your life? And it's dangerous, Jamie Smith goes on to say, because you may think that you know what you love. You may go, I have all the right answers, therefore I love God. But you might not love what you think you love. How do we know? We look at our habits. We look at our life. 
your life will display what is most important to you. Because what happens, he says, is that your habits are born out of what you love the most. And your habits also shape your loves. Your habits also form loves in you, reinforce them or create new ones. Again, silly example, my son was not born an Eagles fan. He didn't come out bleeding green, right? You have to learn that. And because I'm a good parent, I train my child up in the way he should go. And my son is now an Eagles fan because we have trained him such. Our habits, the rituals of being an Eagles fan have been ingrained in him. And he will demonstrate that at one o'clock today. But this is so important for us because faith, you may not love what you think you love. Faith is not merely an intellectual thing. This is also why as parents, we teach our kids to be thankful, to say thank you, even if they're not thankful, right? You say, tell them thank you. Why? In hopes that they will, that that habit of saying thank you will create in them, we're doing this by faith, right parents? That this will create in them a love of being thankful, a thankfulness. And if they're thankful, what will they do? They thank you. And it's this beautiful cycle in which our habits are drawn out of our loves and our habits shape our loves. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who's, a, who's a, an important uh, Christian preacher in history in the 1700s, says this. He says it this way. He says, love is the main thing in saving faith. It's the power, the life and power of it by which it produces great effects. If we try to separate out love from faith, we've missed it. To love, to to trust God, to believe in God, saving faith is to love God. They are one and the same. Here's why I'm saying this. This is so important for us because right here in this room, there are many of us who are deceived into thinking that we are Christians because we have certain biblical answers. We think that we're a Christian because we agree with a few doctrinal statements. Meanwhile, we have no desire to actually be with Jesus. We have no growing desire to submit to him, to obey him, to love him, to be with him, to hear from him, to spend time with him. We have many of us in this room who believe that we are a Christian because we prayed a few strategically placed words in a prayer. We prayed a sinner's prayer. Because we walked an aisle, we made a commitment, we had a momentary experience. Meanwhile, that experience has not given birth to a greater love for Jesus. Jesus, that's not possible. That's not faith. It's not about having the right answer. Who is Jesus talking to in this story? An expert in the law. The man's got all the know. He's got all the answers. And yet he doesn't, he says, you are correct in what you say, but what's he followed that with? Go and do likewise. Having the right answers is not enough. So what does this have to do with neighboring? It has everything to do with neighboring. You see, love is not just a mental thing either. Not just an emotional thing. 
You see, if you were to ask me, do you love Jolie and the kids, I would say yes. And if you said, well, how do you know that? My answer would be, I would describe actions, right? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your friends? How? And you would immediately start talking about ways that you show it. Because love is not just an intellectual thing either. It's an embodied thing. The love for God in the first commandment is made practical and visible in our love for neighbors in the second commandment. Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, you will love your neighbors. How do I know you love me? It's displayed in your love for your neighbor. This is all throughout Scripture. So listen to John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Love for God, love for neighbors are two hinges of a door. You can't do one without the other. You ever tried to open a door on one hinge? Doesn't work. James 2 says the exact same thing in different words. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food, daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. You have to start hearing James at certain points putting air quotes on things. It, if your faith, so-called, is not displayed in acts of love for your neighbor, caring for their physical need, loving them as you love yourself, then your faith is not faith at all. It's dead. It's useless. You're deceiving yourself. James and John did not make this idea up. They got it directly from the source. They got it from Christ himself. I'm going to show you Matthew 25 to show you how big of a deal this idea of eternal life is, how it's connected to Loving your neighbor? Look at Matthew 25. Jesus is telling the story of a day of his return when all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate out the people one from the other. As a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is judgment language in which those who are sheep will experience, the righteous will experience eternal life in its fullest sense. And those who are the goats on his left will experience eternal punishment. Well, how is it so easy for Jesus, like a shepherd sorting out a sheep and a goat, how is it so easy for him to tell? Look at what he says. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, those who are the righteous, those who, ha who are heading towards eternal life and have it already and can experience it in the fullness. He says, come on in. Why? Because when I was hungry... You gave me something to eat when I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And all the sheep are like, uh, what? When did we do that? We didn't see you. Because truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What is the criteria that Jesus uses as evidence of those who are his sheep? Neighboring. It's hospitality stuff. It's generosity. It's looking after the needs of your neighbor. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. Just to be really clear, 
I am not saying, and the scripture is not saying, that if you're just a good enough neighbor, that'll get you eternal life. What it is saying is that the demonstration of those, the life lived out of those who have eternal life, is that they will love their neighbors. Those who have saving faith in Christ, those who have eternal life, are also those who are growing in their love for Christ, which is demonstrated by their love for neighbors. The Bible has absolutely no category for someone who claims to love God and does not love their neighbor actively. I don't know about you, but this feels a little heavy. Because if you're feeling really good about yourself right now, you've probably not heard much this morning. If you're feeling real positive, you've at least missed a couple key words. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself. Why do you think he wanted to justify himself? Because he knew he was in trouble. How do I inherit eternal life? Love God with everything at all times in every way possible and love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. And my only response to that is, who can be saved? It's impossible. Anyone feeling confident? Anyone want to raise your hand? and like, I got this. All of humanity is silenced before God. There's only one man who can raise his hand. Only one man who can stand before God and say, God, I have loved you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength, with every ounce of my being. There's only one man who can say that I have displayed that love in perfect obedience to you from start to finish. There's only one man that can then say, because I love you, I've loved my neighbor, even to the very end, even to the point of laying down my life for them. There is no greater love than that. There's only one man who can stand before God and rightly and justly say, I have earned eternal life. And that man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, takes what he has rightly earned, and he turns to you and I and says, hey, I want you to experience this too. And at his resurrection from the dead, he became a life-giving spirit. And he stands offering to you eternal life, not because you have inherited it by yourself, but because you have received it as a gift. You see, my hope my confidence that I have eternal life right now is not rooted in my ability to love God or my neighbor. But my confidence is that because Jesus did, and by faith I am with him, that I have eternal life right now because I am with Jesus and he earned it perfectly. What's amazing is if you have received that, if the Spirit has begun his work in your life, if you are united with Christ, receive that by faith, you receive eternal life and the promise that he who started this work in you is going to complete it, which means that one day, Jesus is going to make this statement true of you. You will be someone who loves the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and you will be a man or woman who loves your neighbor as yourself. 
He has promised that, and he will make it happen. And until that day is true, we lean into that. We want to grow in that. And this fall, we want to sit. and we want to, we want to think about this. We don't want to just be those who hear the word of God, though we want to be those who do and obey the word of God. That as we experience the love that God has for us as his neighbors, it transform us into those who love God with more of our heart, more of our soul, more of our mind, more of our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at you. You have done what we never could do and we have failed to do. And Lord, by your obedience, you have, you have offered salvation. You have earned salvation and turned and offer it to us. You have, you have given us the opportunity to be reunited with with yourself, with God, to be reconciled to God, which is eternal life. And Lord, would you increase our love for you? We, we do love you because you first loved us and yet our, our love is weak. Would you grow in us a love for yourself? We're confident that that will demonstrate itself, that will prove itself by the way we love others. Make us those people, Lord. Draw us to yourself. Transform us by your grace. It's for your name, for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of the world that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.